Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. In classic cult psychology or in, in, in cult literature, there's really two characteristics to, uh, to a cult. The first is that it's ideologically intense. And of course, that can describe a lot of different organizations, everything from potentially like say something like the Landmark Forum to, um, I don't know, the United States of America, right? You know, like we, we have an ideology that sits behind the organization. And so in order to like be a part of the U.S. government, you probably have to adopt a certain kind of ideology. Of course, I think, you know, maybe Donald Trump is, is testing that theory, or at least some edges of it right now um, in terms of some foundational democratic principles. But there's this idea that we have an ideology and it really, and cults for that reason actually prey upon people who, like myself, really want to make the world a better place, want to change the world or feel dissatisfied in some way and are, and are idealistic, right? And who, and so cults can generally, they can be, there can be political cults. There are quite a few of those out there. Um, there can be um, spiritual cults. Uh, there can be um, even um, commercial cults. Real estate is a really common place apparently right now where you find people, you know, who are learning how to flip houses and do all this stuff, right? And they, they begin to develop this like really, really intense ideology around how they approach the world and how they see the world. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. 
There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember, folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Bob, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. I am super excited to be here. Thanks for having yeah, me. It is really cool to have you here. So, you know, you and I were just talking before we hit record here um, about the fact that, you know, my guest selection process is entirely driven by morbid curiosity. And part of the reason your story intrigued me so much was that I had seen, you know, numerous references to your involvement in being an occult, which I thought, okay, there's got to be something really interesting there. And yet you're a successful technology executive as well. Um, so before we get there and get into all that, uh, I, I want to ask, you a question that I feel is really relevant that might kind of explain how you ended up in a cult. And that is sure what thing. social group were you a part of in high school and how has that impacted the choices that you've <laughs> made with your life? I love it. Um, what social group was I part of? I was always a little socially fluid in high school. Um, you know, I, I always had friends from a lot of different uh, camps, but I say if, if I fell in any single camp, it was what back in the seventies, what they called the freaks. Mm -hmm. Have you ever seen the show freaks and geeks? Yeah, for sure. Uh, we were the freaks. So we were kind of the pot smokers and, <laughs> you know, had long hair and listened to Led Zeppelin and I had Pink Floyd t-shirts and I had, I, frankly, excellent taste in music. Um, <laughs> And uh, yeah, and, and, and really kind of idolize sort of both the hippie culture as well as the rock and roll culture. 
Okay, so fluidity in social groups doesn't seem like a natural path to joining a cult. So yeah. walk me through kind of, you know, how you go from high school to being, you know, this person who is able to sort of navigate multiple social groups to ending up in a cult. Like, what is the path to that? Yeah, I think there's always been sort of, let's call it sort of two disparate parts of my personality. The one part is um, very confident, gregarious, uh, very curious. I really like people. I really enjoy being around people. And that has always sort of lended itself to, to fluidity. I've always, uh, and I still do, um, count a variety of people from a variety of walks of life as friends. You know, Al, um, my wife Alex and I had a brunch this, this Sunday where we had actors, musicians, um, technology executives, podcasters, all sorts of sort of um, a dominatrix, all sorts of kind of interesting people blending together. And that's something I, I think I've always had that curiosity. Uh, I think I've always had another side of my personality. Well, maybe there's even like sort of a th- like sort of three elements. So the other part is one part is that I really always wanted to make the world a better place. Let's call it. So I had this idealistic, um, very philosophically driven. Um, I would buy in to, to new philosophical systems very, very quickly. I became a vegetarian uh, my first year in college, um, influenced by a woman, of course. Uh, and, but yet I, I really like dove deeply into the philosophy of it. And, uh, and I think I've always, I also, you know, went to Japan and studied Zen meditation and martial arts for a while. And I dove deeply into the, you know, into the subculture. So there's this part of me, which like likes to have an immersive experience. The third piece, um, that I think kind of made really coupled with the second that really made the cult, uh, attractive or uh, the cult, um, a natural fit for me was uh, I, I sort of maybe a lack of self-confidence, you know, like I think I, I, I had on the one hand, I had confidence on the other hand, I didn't have a lot, you know, I, I think maybe a lot of us swing from one extreme to the other, but I think there was always this part of me that didn't feel like I fit in, didn't feel like I belonged, um, felt like I, I wanted to change the way the world operated. I was a little um, rebellious, a little angry at the world. And I was also very, I think, willing to morph myself in order to feel like I fit in, in order to feel like I had a social group. So on the one hand, it made it very fluid because I could kind of like change myself and fit into the group. And on the other hand, um, it it made me very sort of dependent, let's say, on other people's opinions of me and and often putting those above my own opinions of myself or my own opinions of the world. And this is a this is a kind of a core piece of cult psychology. Do you want me to go into that? Oh yeah, but I, before, before we get there, I want to actually yeah. get about get into how you found the cult. Uh, yeah, because you know the thing is like when, when I think about sort of a search for community and a search for connection, you know I think a lot of people turn to religion. Um, they turn to you know people within their community. The most natural extension is let me go find a cult to join. Uh, that doesn't seem, you know, the most natural thing. So I definitely want to talk about the psychology, but I want to find out how you actually found it. Like, where, did, how did that actually happen? Um, I actually found it through a fairly common route, and and you know, maybe I can even just sort of like one cults are everywhere. Like, there are more cults out there than we are aware of, and I think there are many organizations that we can see the surface level of, or we see from a distance that actually once you sort of crack an exterior layer, cults often have a, have a, let's call it a legitimate layer, you know, and then, and then kind of a deeper layer to them, um, where, where the cultiness begins. Um, so that, you know, you know, so that, so that their cults are very, very common. I think cult membership is actually more common than we, than we tend to think. The way I found the cult was through a fairly common route, which is I went to, I went and took a workshop. 
Uh And the workshop was promising me something cool, uh, which was uh, essentially, um, I don't know, I was going through my third divorce uh, when I when I discovered this cult. And I think I was very confused about my relationships with women. I was very confused about my relationship with myself. Um, I was very disappointed in both, um, both my sort of professional life and my personal life at the time. And I went to a workshop. I got a lot of attention from women. The, the promise of the, of the workshop was, um, you know, like, I don't know what the, I'm trying to remember the first one I went to was the promise of the organization was essentially that it would help you understand sexuality. It would help you understand relationships. Uh, it would help you succeed at both of those. And, uh, and when you go to these workshops or when I went to these workshops, I was immediately targeted and love bombed is what is, is what the, the, I guess it's the technical term in, uh, in cult psychology. But the idea is that they give you a lot of positive attention, um, and so here I am, this kind of sad, you know, middle-aged or approaching middle-aged guy going through his third divorce. And I go to a workshop and all of these attractive women are giving me attention and telling me I'm the greatest thing ever. And it was an incredibly seductive experience. So that was sort of, and, and, and it just kind of grew from there. It wasn't like a, one day I was out and one day I was in, but it was a gradient. Mm. So, you know, I, I think it's so interesting that you've said, you know, cults are, are much more common than we think. And, you know, I, I've been to probably no, to no end, like an amount of, of, you know, ridiculous amount of self-help workshops. Hell, I think I even created an event that could, you know, classify as, as one, um, you know, and, and I'm thinking back to all the events that I've been through. I mean, I'm sure, you know, given what you know about cults, you know about the Landmark Forum, uh, yeah. you know, and I, you know, I went to a summit event. And uh, one of my friends said, what did you think? And I said, I think the people there are amazing. I think that I was exposed to some of the brightest minds I've ever been exposed to. But I also got the sense that the people that were working there were part of a cult. Mm -hmm. Like there was something very cult-like about it to me. Yeah, I thought the same thing about Landmark. I thought the same, you know, a little bit about, actually, I went to a summit party here in New York just a couple weeks ago. I think it was just last week. And and I, I don't know much about Summit. I don't want to badmouth any specific sure. organization. And by the way, I, I, the cult that I was a part of, I my, sort of my personal policy is I don't talk about it because I'm, I don't name it, sure. even though your readers can easily find it if they, if they want to. But I don't really have a beef with the organization specifically. I mean, I wouldn't really recommend anybody joining it. <laughs> um, but at the same time, I think it's a, I think, you know, this, this, you know, you're, you're, what you're describing, right? This desire for community, this desire for, um, you know, connection and deep relationships and intimacy. It's a very, very natural human drive. And then cults just sort of exploit that or they take it a little bit too far. And frankly, I got a lot out of my experience mm-hmm. being in the cult. Like I learned a lot. I learned a lot of, you know, both from both intentionally and unintentionally, the stuff that they taught actually had some real value to it. And then the, let's call it the, the, the negative lesson or the, you know, when I left the cult, I was, I be, I was broke and depressed and, um, went through, it's a, it's a fairly well-documented psychological phenomenon called post-traumatic growth where, which is almost as common as post-traumatic stress, but it's where, you know, your, your brain and your body and, you know, you go through this intense experience and you're actually able to kind of reformat yourself in a positive way or a more positive way on the other side. It's kind of a pattern interrupt for your life. And in many ways, I'm extremely grateful for the experience, but I'm grateful for the experience in the same way that I hear alcoholics being grateful for their experience, right? You know, like the, you know, many alcoholics or recovered alcoholics will say, 
that without having gone through that kind of edge experience, they wouldn't have the life. They wouldn't have been able to put their life together in the way they did. And I'm, I love my life now. I'm super grateful for the life that I've been able to put together. And it wouldn't have happened without the cult. Now, that said, I'm not here saying, go join a cult, right? You know, like, just like an alcoholic's probably not saying, hey, you know what you should do is really go drink too much and ruin your life. And then, you're, and then you'll figure things out. But um, anyway, I feel like I'm rambling a bit. No, right no, no. Now. This is, this is yeah. fantastic. This is really interesting. Um, yeah. The, like, I, I want to actually talk about lessons learned. I think, you know, one of the, the more interesting things, as you said, is that, you know, there are good things that have come out of this. And I, I, you know, that's the thing. Even when I've had these sort of cult-like experiences like Landmark or even Summit, I thought, you know, yeah, they felt cult-like, but there are some invaluable things that came from doing them. Like, I don't regret them. Um, I'm just glad that I never got so sucked into it that my life was defined by it. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. And I think so. So let's get it. Let maybe let's define our terms a little bit, yeah. because I, I, I throw the word cult around, you know, largely it's a clickbaity kind of thing almost. Right. It's, you know, not not that I live in that world. But when I write something, I want people to pay attention to it. I actually just gave a talk at a, at a conference in San Francisco, a business conference in San Francisco called How Not to Join a Cult. And <laughs> it was a very well attended talk. Right. You know, so. Um, but the word itself is pejorative, of course, right? Nobody really says, hey, we're a cult, come join us, right? It's, a, it's only a term that people from outside the organization apply to the organization and they apply it negatively um, for the most part. I think, you know, we occasionally refer to it ourselves as a cult, but it was ironically and it wasn't really believed. I don't think anybody in the organization, certainly not myself at the time, was like, oh, I'm in a cult. I was just like, oh, I'm in an interesting alternative organization, which is trying to change the world and make the world a better place. So in classic cult psychology or in, in, in cult literature, there's really two characteristics to, uh, to a cult. The first is that it's ideologically intense. And of course, that can describe a lot of different organizations, everything from potentially like say something like the Landmark Forum to, um, I don't know, the United States of America, right? You know, like we, we have an ideology that sits behind the organization. And so in order to like be a part of the US government, you probably have to adopt a certain kind of ideology. Of course, I think, you know, maybe Donald Trump is, is testing that theory, or at least some edges of it right now, um, in terms of some foundational democratic principles. But there's this idea that we have an ideology and it really and cults for that reason actually prey upon people who, like myself, really want to make the world a better place, want to change the world or feel dissatisfied in some way and are, and are idealistic, right? And who, and so cults can generally, they can be, there can be political cults. There are quite a few of those out there. Um, there can be um, spiritual cults. Uh, there can be um, even um, commercial cults. Real estate is a really common place apparently right now where you find people, you know, who are learning how to flip houses and do all this stuff, right? And they, they begin to develop this like really, really intense ideology around how they approach the world and how they see the world. The other piece that makes a cult a cult is that it is um, uh, high demand, right? In that it eventually tries to consume almost all of an individual, right? So uh, you can be a part of an ideologically intense organization and then you can go home to your wife or your family or have your job or you can belong to several ideological intense organizations um, as long as they don't overlap or contradict each other, I suppose, right? Mm -hmm. But when they're high demand, it means that they are increasingly asking for more and more and more and more of your time. And as a matter of fact, there's a structure built inside the organization where there's, I mentioned these kind of rings, there's this outer ring where often there's teaching workshops or or have or you know running community community groups or having some kind of 
um, let's call it low intensity way of, of, of engagement. And that might even be quite profitable uh, and, and really fuel the rest of the organization. But as you go deeper into the organization, the need for commitment, the level of commitment required increases exponentially to the point where they consume essentially all of your time, all your money, all your energy, and all of your, um, let's call it cognitive load, right? You, you end up spending all, every waking hour thinking about the organization and thinking about the success of the organization. And I would go even one layer deeper than that and say, okay, so if you have ideologically intense and high demand, you still might not have a really negative organization. Um, you know, you might, you know, it might be that there are people who are really intensely into that organization and it's, and it's, and the ideology, the ideology is good and it's really helping them live the life they want to, um, you know, and they, and they're retaining an, an, uh, an aspect of free will. They're able to sort of say, you know, actively freely choose. And most people inside cults, by the way, would probably say they're actively freely choosing. Mm-hmm. Um, that's another aside, but really I think the next layer, the third layer is that the organization succeeds and thrives while the individuals who are running that organization or most of the individuals running that organization are failing and suffering. And so in the particular cult I was in, I wouldn't call it, you know, it wasn't a suit, you know, then cults like actually can also do other things where they can be a danger to other people, you know, like the Manson family, right? Mm-hmm. They're, they're a danger to people outside the organization as well as people inside the organization. Um, so the cult I was in, I don't feel like was a danger to people outside the organization. They run workshops. I think the workshops have some interesting stuff in them. But where it got problematic for me was as it kind of sucked people deeper and deeper and deeper into the organization. And the people inside the organization that I see still there, um, and for myself as well, I got increasingly depressed. I got increasingly broke. I got increasingly, increasingly desperate. Um, and I would spend pretty much every waking hour either working for the organization, thinking about the organization, trying to improve the organization, um, lying to people in order to bring them into the organization. You know, recruiting is really a, a primary function in a, in a cultic organization. So, um, but I think it's really, it's really that piece that when we talk about cults and we talk about community that's often missing is that if it's high demand and ideologically intense and it's good for you, then by all means continue, you know, keep, I think that organization should, should keep going. Mm. But I think there's a massive gray area there. You know, I hear stuff about Amazon's, you know, executive culture that I'm like, whoa, that's, that sounds like a horrible place to be, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, Wow. You know, it's funny. So <laughs> uh, the, the thing that really kind of got my attention is this idea of ideologically intense, right? Because I think any one of us who has built some semblance of an online community or a brand, like when you said ideologically intense, immediately a, fr- a few people I know very well in the space of the internet came to mind. I'm like, okay, people who listen to Tim Ferriss are into something that's ideologically intense. People who follow the unmistakable creative. If they've read my book, know this is ideologically intense. People who attend the World Domination Summit are subscribing to something that's ideologically intense. And even, you know, my friend AJ Leon at Misfit, I think is incredibly ideologically intense. Um, And yet these are all things that are good for you. Like they don't have the high demand component of, but I think it's just really interesting that there are so many things in our world that are ideologically intense. And I'm wondering how you, you know, how you maintain some semblance of a unique point of view and a unique perspective and your own opinion um, when you're basically inundated with such intense ideology. 
Yeah, and I think so. This really gets again at the cult, at the at the heart of how cults um, recruit, right? So I mentioned the love bombing thing, and mm-hmm. so the love bombing thing, essentially, it's a it, the function it serves is it keeps you coming around because hey, who doesn't want to be loved bombed? And it and it, it they tend cults tend to prey on people who like me at the time were were in sort of transitionary periods of time, of their lives, right? Who are you know like confused and trying to find something, trying to find meaning, trying to find purpose, trying to you know, and so latching on to an ideology, but even more so latching on to a community that offers you approval and offers you love and care, you know, which honestly I think was in many ways authentic. Um, you know, I did feel like I had some some very real bonds. And actually, there are members of, of that cult who I still count as some of my closest and dearest friends. I'm sorry, they're ex-members. I don't really associate with people who are still in the group, but there are ex-members who I'm still very, very close with and, and, and adore as people. Um, so they, they pull you in. Now, there's a, there, there, so the, the next piece of the puzzle is really what we would call socialization. And this really speaks to how do we hold on to ourselves. And there's a series of fascinating, fascinating experiments from the 1950s, a guy named Solomon Ash. I don't know if you've ever seen them. They're called the, the Ash Conformity Experiments. Mm-hmm. Um, you can find them on YouTube, uh, uh, some of them, and you can do, certainly find some really compelling explanations of them. But what Ash, what, what he was one of the first people to really clinically demonstrate how susceptible humans are to other humans. And so one of his, his one of my favorite experiments that he does, or that he did was, uh, he called it the elevator experiment. And, and he would put a person, uh, well, actually, he would put a bunch of people who are kind of his assistants into an elevator. And then uh, an unsuspecting person would come along and get in the elevator and they and the doors would shut. And then all of the people who were already in the elevator who were kind of in on the joke or in on the, the test would ser- would sort of casually but in unison turn. They would actually change eventually like face the back of the of the, the carriage or face the side of the carriage. Um, sometimes it was like they would take their hats off or they would put their hats, you know, whatever, whatever it was, but they would do something all in all more or less in unison. It wasn't choreographed perfectly. Um, so the person would really notice like I'm in the midst of a, you know, synchronized swimmers or something, but it was like everybody was kind of doing this thing. So then what you watch is you watch this one person who's not in on it. They very predictably kind of look a little bit nervous. They scratch their head. And then they turn and join in with the other with the group. And so and this happens again and again and again, an experiment after experiment. And it doesn't matter what the intelligence of the person is. It doesn't matter, you know, what the race of the person is, what the gender of the person is. We are. He just showed that we are all way more susceptible to that. And I know. You know, years ago when I would have first seen that, I would have said, well, everybody but me, you know, like that's that's not going to happen to me. But I think it's it's such a fundamental groups and organizations, which are really um, that's what I what I do now is actually I'm a consultant and I work with organizations. Um, But groups and organizations are really fundamental to who we are as individuals and and they're fundamental to our evolutionary survival, our individual survival. Um, Organizations are kind of at the root of almost everything that's human. It's one of the reasons we desire community so much and we desire, you know, and family can have such a strong and powerful pull on us. And so what the cult generally does then, once you've been love bombed, then he starts to sort of ask you to conform. The first thing is linguistically. So um, the organization I was a part of had certain meanings for words. Um, Turned on was a meaning that they used in a very, very specific kind of way. And all of a sudden you start to use that word the way everybody else does because you're trying to fit in. Oh, I was turned, you know, that 
what a turned on thing, or I, I can't quite remember even how I used it now, but uh, turned on was a certain thing. Orgasm was a certain thing. It was a very sex based or sexual sexualized view of the world. This particular org was, but, um, but they, all of these words were used in very specific ways. And then in order to fit in kind of to like turn in the elevator with everybody else, you start to kind of use that language and language. If you've studied NLP or if you studied, um, you know, any, um, any cognitive psychology, essentially like language is so at root of consciousness. It's so at the root of who we are that as you begin to use language in different ways, that begins to then open the door to modify behavior, right? So then, um, and then that's where it really begins to pull people in deeper and deeper. And so for myself, you know, I went to workshops, started to use the language in a new way, started to kind of, let's call it date, even though it wasn't exactly dating, but dating different members, um, you know, being sexual with different members. So I had this kind of, um, you know, my, my, my mind, my body was getting involved with the place and then they needed some help around the place. And so I began to help them. I was a carpenter. I knew how to, I, I knew how to hang drywall and they were building out their center. So I started hanging drywall and, uh, and doing a little finished carpentry for them for which I got a great deal of approval. Um, and then they had kind of a hostile space and I said, okay, maybe I should move. You know, I need, I wanted to move. I was, I was going through a divorce anyway and I was in a temporary space. I was like, okay, well, let's move in and see where this goes. And so I moved in and where it went very, very, very quickly was I, I ended up quitting all outside work. I ended up getting, you know, becoming a teacher of their stuff. I be, I ended up, um, you know, dating somebody inside the organization, developing a, a kind of very, very tight bond with, with one woman, um, inside the organization. And it just sort of went from there, which is, it sort of began to consume all of my thinking, all of my time, all of my energy. And it really happened very, very quickly. It was a very, um, looking back on it, I'm, I don't know, I'm, I'm shocked and, and even dismayed. Like, I mean, it's hard to talk about this sometimes. There's still, I still have some shame associated with it mm -hmm. about how easily I was co-opted. Even though when I moved in, I moved in with every intention, you know, like not to be you know, like, like I wasn't going to, I, I thought, oh, I'll, I'll keep my job. I'll just live in this cool place and I'll have friends to hang out with at night. And it seemed really great. And then before too long, I was, I, I, I wasn't, I had no friends outside the place. I only had friends inside the place. And, uh, and I was, or if I had friends outside the place, I was trying to suck them in and invite them to the place because recruiting had now become my, my primary function. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. How would you like to look 5 years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking 5 years younger at 6 months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. 
There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hmm. Yeah, so you mentioned your friends, and that, that was actually my next question. I'm, I'm curious, you know, what was the impact uh, on your relationships with not just friends, but family and people who weren't part of the cult? Yeah, that was, uh, I mean... I never got completely cut off and I don't, and this particular organization doesn't necessarily try to cut you off completely. They, they, there actually is a a little bit of fluidity between the outside world. Some organizations, um, get really, really intense and try to, and, and really completely cut you off, um, from the outside world or really encourage that. Um, this particular org didn't do that and, and it has a, a pretty big public face and, you know, it gets, it still is out there. It still gets written about regularly. Um, so for me, I, I didn't really have many friends outside the organization anymore. I would occasionally see people. And again, I would always often invite them to come to our, let's call them recruiting events, right? They they were, they were, you know, they were characterized as workshops or something that, you know, something of benefit to the, to the attendant attendees, but really for the organization, they were there to identify, uh, potential members for the org, you know, people people that could be brought in, and you know this is another language thing, right? Bringing somebody in was sort of the highest, one of the highest compliments. You know, oh, you brought that person in, like that was something that was seen as as a real good thing for you to do uh, w- with the organization. So that was often my my relationship. 
my family was a little bit different. Um, I actually had a couple of deaths in my family while I was in the org, and I did go to funerals and see people. Um, I don't believe I took any like trips home to see, you know, for the holidays or anything like that. But I'm perhaps a, I, I don't know that, I think the organization, most of us probably were, were somewhat, I, you know, I don't use the word estranged because I, I love my family and I still, I, I still am in, in touch with them, but I'm not the closest per, you know, we don't, we're not the closest or the tightest family. I don't, you know, I don't go there for every holiday. And, um, and so, and I, and I, and I never really have, I've always been a little bit, um, my family's been a little bit, a little bit looser. So I, I, I don't have, um, oh, but I, <laughs> I did, uh, this is, this is kind of an embarrassing story. So I, um, before I, I joined this cult, I had been in publishing for many years. I was a design director at a couple different newspapers. And because of that, I knew a lot of writers. And this organization really wanted publicity. It really wanted to get the word out. The, the founder, um, you know, she's since written a book and given a TED Talk and, and all, you know, all, all sorts of other. It's a very, very public facing organization, which is, again, a little bit strange in the cult world because often cults tend to be a little more secretive. But uh, the um, because I knew uh, a writer um, the, I reached out to somebody, uh, they were writing for a weekly newspaper in the Bay area. And I said, Hey, um, would you write an article on us? And she loved the idea. And so I ended up helping craft that article. Not, I didn't help craft the article. She wrote the article. She's an amazing writer. And, um, but I was very much one of the front faces of it. I would, you know, there's a picture of me with the article. I'm, I'm, I'm I imagine maybe your readers are out there kind of looking for it right now. I say some really <laughs> stupid shit in that article and I'm super embarrassed by it. But anyway, that's what it is. It's there. Um, and you can find it with my, cause it's, my name is attached to it and, and, and nothing ever dies, never, <laughs> nothing ever dies in the digital realm. But, um, so I was very proud of this article when it came out. Because it was something I had done for this organization. It was something I really believed in. And like an idiot, I sent it to my parents. My father was still alive at the time. And I sent it to my parents and I was, you know, I was, I was nervous. I was like waiting to hear from them. I wanted them to say something nice about it. But you look back on it. I look back on it and it's like, it's some weird stuff. And my family's kind of religious. Like, I don't know what I was expecting. I was, I, I, again, I was, I was, it was, it was a dumb move. And so I get, I eventually get an email from my father and my father was a lovely man and very, very, very kind and very measured and very live and let live kind of guy, but also very conservative raised in the thirties in North Carolina. And, uh, and so, and he wrote this back, wrote me this letter back, which using language I never heard him use before, but about being afraid for my eternal soul. He was afraid, um, you know, uh, it, it was all couched in, in religious terms and again, my father never really used that kind of language much, but he was using it in this. And, uh, and that was it, you know, that was it. I, that was all I got. And then a couple of weeks go by and I get a, and I get a phone call and I let it go to voicemail, but I get a phone call from my dad and I let it go to voicemail. And again, I'm like, I'm, I'm shame filled at this point and nervous. And, you know, like I still believe in the organization, but I don't know, like, I guess maybe the cracks were starting to show for me or something. Anyway, I was, I was, it was all very, very nerve wracking and freaking, you know, I was kind of freaking out. And so I, I finally, you know, built up the courage to listen to the voicemail message. And it was just my dad saying, Hey, you know, we've been sending you a subscription to time magazine and we're wondering if you still want to receive it because it's up, it's up for renewal. And 
what I realized at that point was, and this is something I think that I've, I've really continued to really love my family for is that they were like the, the, the unspoken communication in there was, we love you, but don't ever talk about that stuff again with us, you know, like, like we're, we love you and we're there for you. And, you know, and we're not, we're not cutting you off. There was no attempt to do that, but that we, but that that was weird and we don't want to hear about that thing that you're into. And we still, to this day, my dad's passed a couple of years ago. Um, I did get, I did have the chance to get close to him after, after I left the organization, I, I moved back to the East coast near, near my family and, and was able to spend a few years being pretty close to my dad, which was a real gift. Uh, and my mom is still here, so I'm still close to her, but, um, but to this day, like the name of the organization has never, has never crossed anybody's lips. We don't, we, we don't really talk about it. I guess we're just, you know, good conservative, you know, Protestant, you know, uptight Protestant people. One of the things I'm really curious about is at the, the peak of your involvement um, with this cult, what was a typical day in your life like? So we would wake up, um, I believe it was about 6.30 in the morning, something like that. And then we would go and do the, the cult had a core practice. And most cults do, by the way. They have, they, they have a, a practice that induces a trance state. Um, breath work is a really common one. Um, different kinds of more active meditations are fairly common. Uh, and it, it they, they serve a function of kind of keeping people a little bit off balance. Anyway, typical day. Wake up in the morning. Uh, I would wake up in a warehouse uh, that had been converted into a giant bedroom. There were about, let's say, I guess 30. That we, we eventually attached a couple of buildings together, rented other buildings here in the neighborhood. So there were about 40 or 50 people at different times, um, depending upon what was going on. And we had some satellite you know, uh, organizations in New York at the time and a few other places. And so sometimes they would be, we would be holding big workshops or bring people in from other places, but there were, let's just say around 40 people. So I'd wake up, um, all the beds were shared. So I would either wake up with my partner or I would wake up with somebody else. Um, we often had what they would call sleepovers where you just, you know, you, you would ask somebody if you could share their bed. Sometimes it was sexual. Sometimes it was not. It was really up to the people to decide. But it was a very, again, fluid situation. Um, the warehouse, all the beds were separated by curtains uh, on either side, but they were open to the middle of the room. And it was just one of these old San Francisco warehouses. We would go over to our center where we would all do the practice, which was something um, called orgasmic meditation. Um, that's a giveaway term, by the way, about the organization, but it involved uh, one person stroking another person's genitals for a focused period of time for 15 minutes. Usually it was a woman, the woman being stroked. Um, this is getting kind of gross or kind of, <laughs> Keep going. kind of graphic here, I guess, but I want to give you totally the sense. Cool. Right? No, I, I want to really, it was, it was really kind of beautiful, but really kind of weird all at the same time. It's like 6am you're, you're bleary eyed and then you're jumping right into sexual energy. Um, in a in a kind of group setting, and, it, and again, this th- I think more than the cult. This is probably what makes me sound like a freak. So hopefully, I'm, <laughs> I'm coming across. Um, I'm not like torpedoing my career by talking about this right now. Um, so then we would do. Uh, there was usually a kind of chores, or some work session around the place. Um, sometimes there was journal writing, um, various uh, you know different jobs to be done. I was frequently. Uh, most of my time there, I was re- very much involved in kind of the marketing efforts. I was always often working on a new website or, um, you know, I had a I had a real a real job um, with, let's call it the business side of the organization. And so I would go and, and work on that. 
But one thing that characterized this particular org, and I think maybe still does, is that it was a very, let's call it mercurial place. So you might wake up in the morning with every intention of doing one thing, and then the leader would come by, because um, really it all, it all came back to the leader. Well, it really wasn't generated by, most, by anybody else there. But the leader would come by, and she would have a new idea. She didn't really live with us. She lived elsewhere for the most of the time. But she would come by. She'd have a new idea. Um, I used to always kind of joke that, you know, she was going to come by one day and tell us we were all making shoes now, you know, like we were going to be in an <laughs> entirely different business. Funny thing is, I think we've all worked for bosses like this. I, I, you know, it's not just here that I've worked for bosses who constantly change their minds. But what would happen is that the the sort of the desperation or the excitement would rise in the place really, really dramatically and really, really fast. And it might get to the point where we had spun up almost an entirely new business or an entirely new project in a single afternoon. And I, then I would, you know, stay awake until, you know, 10, 11 o'clock at night working on that particular thing. We almost always had an event of some kind, um, most every night of the week, but, you know, sometimes it was, it was less frequent. Uh, and then we would have weekend workshops that would take over the place on the entire weekend as well. Um, and then, and so I was either teaching those workshops or supporting those workshops. So almost every single day of the week, I was doing something for the organization, but that could be everything from, you know, building a website, writing copy, running a photo, you know, a photo shoot. I would often get photographers to come in and do stuff for us. Uh, or it would be teaching a workshop, um, and, uh, and, and, or playing what we call back of the house for the workshop. So somebody who was kind of in a more supporting role and we were really encouraged to be fluid in that. And then in terms of that sort of meditative practice, they call it, which again, I think is a, is a, <laughs> it's a trance state inducing practice as well as a jealousy and craziness inducing practice, which really keeps people unsettled. Uh, we were encouraged to do that, um, with multiple partners, uh, several times a day as well. So we would have like the, the, the session in the morning, which was a group session, which was, you know, um, where we would do sort of two rounds of, of this practice. And then the rest of the day we would do, um, you know, we were encouraged to kind of pair off at different times and, and, and do at different times. But I think one of the things that was really attractive about the place to me and, 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 you know, and frankly, it, it is sort of how I still try to craft my life is that I like, a, I like a lot of different activities during a day. I don't like to be doing just one thing. I like to be very project-based. And at that time, I really, really enjoyed um, intensity a lot. I think we were all kind of adrenaline junkies to a certain degree there. And we all craved um, intensity. And this very much mirrors the way I approached romantic relationships uh, before um, this place. I don't approach it that way now. My, thank God my, and my wife is very happy about this, but that, uh, that it was, we were always like either making up or breaking up, right? I was always having some really intense experience with the person I was with. And, um, and what happened with the organization was I was able to crank that up to like 11, right? I was able to do, I, I was able not, I did, wasn't just in a dysfunctional intensity driven relationship with one woman. I was in a dysfunctional intensity driven relationship with many, um, and it allowed, and I sort of played out all of that sort of crazy making, um, way of, re of relating to other people and, and sort of to the nth degree. And I sort of, I feel like I kind of played it to the end, you know, eventually. Wow. Um, so I'm curious, uh, 
one, you know, what were some of the other people like in the cult? Like what kinds of walks of life do they come from? Are these types of people that are just walking around living in our neighborhoods and we're interacting with on a daily basis and we, we may not even know it? Yeah. And I think there are people who are sort of half in, half out, you know, like I say, it was high demand, but you know, honestly, the organization did and still does, I think, try to find ways for people to be a little more in or a little more out, you know, um, you know, like kind of to, to kind of find their own level within the organization with the understanding that you're never giving quite enough. Right. right. The, the organization <laughs> is always dissatisfied with your with your performance. Um, but there were some people who, who I think had some really healthy boundaries, even people who lived in the org who were able to maintain out the outside jobs uh not many, but but there were a few. You know, we had everything from there were a lot of body workers, uh, you know, a lot of it was a San Francisco thing. So a lot of, you know, kind of new agey um, sort of people um, There were I, I was going to say we had some dancers, but that was more they, they were more into partner dancing as a as a hobby, not really professional dancers. Uh, a lot of technology people. Um, one of the one of the people in the org was like a robotics um, programmer. And he actually he was a, I, I really love him and he ended up uh he always had a really healthy relationship with the place never got really sucked in and uh he and his wife eventually moved out and have kids and you know like they i, I think they probably maybe have a different view of the org than i do um, they may they might not call it as culty as i did um we also had some kind of unsavory characters who were hanging around both there would be men who were obviously you know kind of desperate and needy and were there entirely just for the sexual kind of energy and contact and and couldn't really get it anywhere else. We even had some people who were, you know, who had done some time and who were kind of on the wrong side of the law. Um, there were people there were uh, a lot of different kinds of addicts in the place. Um, it was pretty common for people to either have food issues, you know, eating disorders or um, substance problems. We, we were very much encouraged to be sober while we were there. Uh, and there was a, definitely a sort of a 12 step element that went through the place. Um, but uh, a lot of the people there came from fairly intense, uh, you know, drug use backgrounds as well. So it was really a, a, a kind of a, a wide variety. We even had, you know, a fairly high profile, you know, investor kind of be part of the place for a while, though never really completely involved. We, you know, um, you know, there was a there was a, a friend of mine. There was a lawyer. I don't know. There was all. It was, it was really eclectic and interesting. And I think a lot of us were there because it allowed us to really see other sides of the world that we had never seen before. And I, um, you know, I got to experience and got to know, um, you know, quite well people that I don't think I would have encountered otherwise. Oh, we had a couple of people who were, you know, who worked in strip clubs, who were dancers there, and that kind of dancer, and. Um, yeah, I think there was there was probably a little bit of let's call it shadow sex work, not outright prostitution, but sensual massage and that kind of thing uh, going on, you know, going on with the members there as well. Wow. Well, <clears throat> tell me about leaving um, and the transition out. I'm very curious kind of, you know, what that looked like and, and you know, what uh, was there like withdrawal? Like, I mean, this is a pretty drastic change, I'd imagine. Yeah, it was a really drastic change. And I think uh, it happened sort of in stages. But then, you know, what, what, what's the old quote? You know, how did you go broke, you know, um, gradually and then suddenly? Um, you know, so I, I left gradually and then suddenly. And, and it started off uh, with I, I did have a, a girlfriend while I was part of the, the organization, um, somebody I'm so close to. And we left at the same time. 
And the way it happened was we uh, there was actually a bed bug infestation in our uh, living facility, right? And in that warehouse I described. And as you can, might imagine, bed bugs sort of swept through fairly quickly and were impactful to everybody very, very quickly in that environment. And it was really kind of horrible. Um, and so my partner, she had a really negative reaction to it. Uh, I had also lost my my job, which was fairly common there. You would always, you know, like the leader liked to shake things up pretty regularly. So I had been shaken up pretty recently and moved out of my job and had no had no role with the org. So that the combination of like my girlfriend really hating the bed bugs and saying we have to get the hell out of here and me not having a role meant that we we rented another space. We just we found another space and we we you know we sublet a room actually from somebody in another part of town. And when I moved out, I thought, oh, I'll stay involved. Like there was a workshop that weekend. It's like, oh, I'll come support the workshop. And what I found is that as I moved out or as I got away from the group and started interacting more with other people, I was also kind of looking for work at the time because I'd lost my role in the Oregon wasn't and had no income and no, you know, I was having trying to pay rent and I was pretty broke and trying to figure stuff out. So I was interacting more and more. I was reawakening old friendships and I think it slowly dawned on me that I had been in a really weird place. Like it had been very, it was a very strange place. And I was like, and it didn't make me feel very good. And I didn't want to go back there. I didn't really think of it in terms of cult at the time. I didn't know much about cult psychology at the time. I'd had, I never, didn't really call it a cult seriously until about two or three years after I left. But um, so me and this woman, we left together. Uh, I eventually found some other work and... Uh, it really, I, I still maintain some loose associations with some people who were not in the leadership of the org for a little while. And then I realized, um, for myself that I really needed to break off all contact. I should say that at this point too, was where the stress went through the roof. And so, um, I also broke up with the girl that this woman fairly soon after leaving our relationship didn't survive though. Our friendship does now. But um, I went through a very, let's call it kind of a close call. I think we all at different times of our lives, you know, like think, oh, things would be easier. I wish I was dead, right? We, we, may, we might go through like a little momentary thing during depressive moments. Um, and I've been through that throughout my life. And I've always been a little depressed and, and, and not very happy person. But I really went through one night or two nights where I really began to kind of plot my own Death. I, I really went through what you know psychologists would call suicidal ideation. I never acted on it. I never really tried, but I made some pretty specific plans and some pretty definite plans. And it really scared the hell out of me, frankly. You know, like it really got me to this point. And I think that was where, um, again, alcoholics will describe hitting bottom. I would call that the place that I hit bottom. And the decision I made at that point was that I want to stick around. I was like, you know, maybe. Maybe this is the best choice for me, but I also have a lot going for me. I was aware that I had a supportive family. I was aware that I had some friends um, that I could, you know, that were coming back into my life and seemed to still like me. And I hadn't burnt bridges. I had a master's degree. Uh, you know, I had some assets and I was like, oh, OK, I should be able to take these assets and turn them into a life that's worth living, even though it doesn't feel that way now, even though it feels like everything is falling apart now. And so I made the decision to kind of incrementally improve. And from that moment on, um, 
I, it's kind of weird, but I, I made a decision at that moment. I was offered a job almost immediately um, managing, doing product management, which I had never done before for a, uh, a, a you know, a website, a, you know, a, actually a telecom startup. And, uh, you know, through, through a friend, through a connection, he was self-financing this thing. He didn't want really to pay me much money, but he gave me really valuable experience. And within about two years, I was coaching people in that field. And within about three or four years, I had moved into management consulting, also, um, you know, kind of helping people, uh, uh, you know, improve their organizations and change their organizations. Um, and so it, it was, it's really weird how you hit bottom. You know, I always say, like, I kind of hit bottom really hard but I seem to have bounced, you know, like I, and, and that, but that time period of leaving the organization was absolutely one of the most painful and disorienting and difficult things in my life. Um, not that I hadn't been through pain before, but I think the difference this time was that I was really determined to try and make something new, to try and create something new for myself, a new possibility for myself. Um, and so I did several things. I got sober myself. Um, I'm not, I don't identify as an, as an alcoholic, um, myself, but being sober for a few years really helped. I meditated every day. Um, and I worked really, really hard at my job uh, in order to be, be the best I could be. Um, but it was really kind of, let's call it touch and go there for a very long period of time. But it got to the point where two years later, I looked back and I really wasn't able to recognize myself. I was like, what, what happened? You know, what, how did, how did I end up, you know, who was that person who was there? I mean, I still identify. I mean, I thought it was still me. I'm not saying it was like I disassociated or anything, but I was like, how did I end up being that, that person? And that, that was so enthralled with the organization. And, um, and I think it was like that, you know, that two year mark that I met somebody who um, had actually been in a kibbutz cult like kibbutz in Israel for a long time. And he started to describe his experience to me. I described my experience to him and we were like, oh, my God, we had kind of the same experience. And then he directed me towards um, some a, a couple of amazing books on cult psychology. And I was like, you know, and it was just like this awakening, awakening, awakening. It's like, oh, my God, I was in a cult. How how did I miss that before? Hmm. And, um, yeah. yeah. Wow. Okay. I'm going to make you tell us what a few of those books are, but we'll get that. We'll get to that. Um, I have other questions before we get there. Um, one, you know, what has been the impact, uh, on your relationships post cult, uh, from the experience of being in the cult and how, how has this influenced the work that you do with organizations? Uh, so those are, yeah, those are two, two important questions, I guess. So one is, I think, relationships. This is interesting. I consider relationships to be really foundational to, to who I am and what I do. And not just what I do kind of professionally, but just sort of how I engage with the world. Um, I mentioned having, you know, a br the brunch, the kind of eclectic brunch on Sunday. It's actually something my wife and do once a month where we invite 10 people who don't know each other and who we don't know. And but who we're somehow inspired by or we've encountered in our lives. We're like, I want to know more about that person. And we invite them to brunch and we actually don't let them talk about what they do for the first hour. Um, and and then we do we, we eat brunch and we play a game where each per, where we have to go around the table and guess what each person does. And then there's sort of a reveal at the end. And it's it's this incredibly sweet moment. You know, it's just this incredibly um, precious, you know, like I really feel like I, I get this kind of intimacy 
and I get to know these people and I love it. And then they leave and then I clean up. So it's very different from the cult. But I think there's a quality to the experience which reminds me of what it was like to have that kind of level of intimacy with a group of people. Um, also, professionally, I tend to work with teams. So um, I'm a management consultant these days and I work with organizations. Um, and they, there's a, always a moment. And so my, my core kind of work is around taking a group of people who need to coordinate action um, and work together, and I help them work together. I help them develop the, the sort of the meeting rhythm, the meeting habits, and the technical infrastructure they need in order to manage their work better and manage their work well. And so um, I work from a very sort of specific philosophical framework, uh, and a lot of what I do is education. So like maybe the, my first day with people is going to be pure education, just trying to let them know like this is this is why we do what we do. This is where we come from. This is kind of what to expect. And then we start to dig into their work. We start to kind of like really begin to organize it. And there's always this moment where they begin to take off. They begin to like take ownership of the process because I've laid the foundation. And then I and the people that I work with, we've laid the foundation. And then the team starts to really take ownership and take over. And it really, I don't know how to describe it, but it fills me with emotion. Like I just get filled with this very, very sweet, like, oh my God, like they're, they're taking ownership. They're engaged in a way they haven't been engaged before. And there's something about seeing people positively engaged in something meaningful, something that they care about uh, in their work that still, um, that still really moves me. And I think perhaps it's that you know, like that uh, sensitivity that kind of got me in trouble in the first place because I was, when I saw like the sweetness of people coming together, then I was like, that I wanted it all the time. And, and that kind of led me into the cult. So I think that really impacts it. And I think the other thing that I really think about a lot, because um, it's very common, as you said, for people to describe their organizations as cults these days, <laughs> um, or, you know, when they're building community to build cult, is one I also try to, I, I really try to help people build organizations that elevate the people inside the organization as well as do good outside the organization. And that good can be, so I, I should say I have an MBA and green and sustainable business. So, um, that's sort of one of the frames I look at the world in is what's this, what's the social impact of the organization? What's the environmental impact of the organization? And then also what's the consumer impact of the organization? Sort of the classic people, planet and profit frame that comes out of the green business world. Um, but I'm really looking at the, the structure of the organization and how do we how do we create a world where whole people can come together, collaborate, coordinate, um, synchronize their action, but do so as whole people um, and people helpfully with separate lives. And how can that then enhance you know, their, the, those people's lives? Because I think organizations, again, are fundamental to who we are. They're fundamental to the kind of impact we can have on the world. I mean, you know this and the, what you created, you, you can't create it by yourself. You've got to have other people. Mm -hmm. And, um, and hopefully it's not just a commercial, you know, like we don't want necessarily just a commercial relationship with somebody, right? We want, we want that relationship to actually be personal as well as commercial, right? We want to be paying them up, you know, if we're building something, but, but payment doesn't really buy you engagement. It doesn't buy you the, the thing I think that we're really after, uh, when it comes to, to creating organizations. So this has really led me to a place where I think the fundamental question that I'm asking myself over and over again right now is, what is a good organization? If I'm being normative, if I'm going to say that organization is good, 
I'm making a value judgment and I'm making a value judgment from a specific frame. If you look at Jim Collins work and something like good to great, he's basically talking about financial performance or the rate of innovation or, you know, the reduction of overhead cost out kind of measures and that kind of thing, which I think is valuable. If you talk, you know, I have a, a friend who is a diversity consultant. So when she says a good organization, she means, you know, one that allows a variety of gender expressions, a variety of, you know, people from racial backgrounds and cultural backgrounds to come together and collaborate. Um, when, um, you know, I have friends who are very much in the CSR, the corporate social responsibility world, when they say good organization, they mean something with a, you know, a, 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 a zero emissions company or something like that, right? They're looking at a different. And what I really want to do is I really want to be, I think all of these things are interrelated. Um, I think that's the biggest thing that I got out of this is like who I, I, I think it's really hard to have an organization that does good in the world if the people inside the organization aren't living good lives. And I think that's really the big, big lesson I have um, from cults, from from my time in cults. And, you know, you'll see this with nonprofits often, right? Like people who are in nonprofits are 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 living kind of uh, kind of hard lives, but they're there because they're really dedicated. I'm not saying that that organization doesn't do those organizations don't all do good. But I'm saying I think it's really hard for organizations to do sustained good in the world if the people in the organization aren't living really, really good lives. And I guess I'm just really curious about all everything that goes into that. This is a whole systems view. And as such, it's incredibly complex and incredibly subtle. And sometimes you think something is good and it turns out that it's actually got this kind of like weird, dark edge to it. And I'm really kind of interested in exploring what those weird, dark edges are and how we can learn and grow and improve um, kind of as a species, you know, like, because I think how we organize is something which we are in an intense um, period of evolution of right now that's really, really changing a lot. And, uh, and it's huge amounts of opportunity there. So interested in playing in that realm. Wow. Um, this has been mind blowing. <laughs> it really has. Uh, so before we finish with my final question, book recommendations, you mentioned that there are a few books on the psychology of cult formation. So I have to ask what those were. Yeah. I mean, if you've been in a cult or you think you've been in a cult, um, uh, I think, I think it's Janja Lalich is the name, but any of the book is called take back your life. Hugely eye opening to me. Very easy read, um, written by a therapist who really helps people recover, um, it's probably the the main like sort of cult book I would recommend when it comes to kind of like other like sort of the cultural things. There's there's two books that have really been, I'd say, massively influential on me in the past couple of years. One is called Sapiens. Um, and I'm trying to remember the guy's name. Harari is his name. He's a Israeli mm-hmm. scholar. Fascinating read. Easy read. He's it's a really like and really engaging. It looks daunting when you look at it, but it's so engaging telling the kind of the story of our species and very much looking at organizations um, as part of that. And then um, the other book is by a biologist, an evolutionary biologist named E.O. Wilson, who was actually an expert on leaf cutter ants of all things. Um, but he wrote a book that where he's really, he's very late in his career right now. He's a Harvard, uh, he's in his eighties and he's a Harvard biologist and he's wrote a book called The Social Conquest of Earth, um, which takes a very interesting look at the way social systems have been really core to the to humanity's um, sort of evolutionary dominance. And and there's, I, you know, and I think cults have kind of exploit that to a certain degree. Right. So there's there's a light side and a dark side, um, obviously, to that. So, wow. So, um 
one final question, which is how we finish all our interviews uh, at the Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Uh, you know, I think we're all unmistakable, but we just don't haven't learned to express it yet. Um, oh, man. Robin Williams, there's a, 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 uh, an album one of the, well, you remember, I don't remember comedy albums back in the, back in the seventies, but Robin Williams had one. And there was one where he, he said that, uh, that people are kind of like flowers. And I, I don't know. I, I, it, it seems kind of, kind of hokey, I guess, but I think we're all really unique. Like, and, and I think, you know, we're all here in some ways to, to do something. I don't know what that is, um, for anybody else. I don't even know what it is for myself. I think it's an emergent property. I think it's something you discover step by step over time. But you don't discover it when you um, when you don't talk about the hard stuff. And it's one of the reasons that here I am, you know, in my kind of middle aged and sort of late in my career or not middle in my career, let's say mid career. Um, and I'm talking about having been in a cult. And I think one of the reasons I really want to talk loudly about it is one, I think there's lessons in it for everybody. But two, I think it's just it's one of those things that makes me me and it and it allows me it opens the door for me to talk about and engage with the things that really matter to me. And so I think I know a lot of people listening to this podcast, myself included, I'm listening here for for signal on what to do with my life or what to do with my career. And I think it's it's find that thing that feels weird about you and talk about it. Hmm. Well, uh, this has just been mind-blowingly interesting and fascinating as I expected it would be. And uh, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and uh, share your story with our listeners. Cool. It was my pleasure. Thanks a lot, man. Yeah. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming. Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. 
Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World, and this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch, the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.